At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Thursday, January 19th, 2023. Welcome in to the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson, in New York City today. Glad to have you here. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, every weekday, that's our show. And then around the clock for free, on demand, it's our podcast, the whole show, no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us here on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at Guy Benson Show. You can follow me on those platforms personally at Guy P. Benson. I'm the political editor at townhall.com, a Fox News contributor. I'll be on Gutfeld tonight. I was on the couch about numbered earlier today. Gutfeld to finish off the evening, 11 p.m. Eastern time. That's on Fox News. Always looking forward to that. On the radio, here's our lineup. Jennifer Griffin later this hour. Congressman Mike Gallagher in the next hour, Republican of Wisconsin. Brian Riedel of the Manhattan Institute coming up in our final hour and much more. We open the show with a Fox News alert. This just breaking minutes ago, the U.S. Supreme Court giving us an update on the investigation into the Dobbs decision leak back in May. A stunning leak. Really unlike anything we'd seen before out of the court. That correctly forecast with great specificity that the court was going to overturn Roe versus Wade. Just someone handed the draft opinion that had been written by Justice Alito to Politico, which published it. And there's been investigations into who might have been responsible and speculation, people pointing fingers, righties saying it clearly came from the left, lefties saying it probably came from the right. Well, We've gotten radio silence from the court itself on this issue since the announcement of the probe. Here's the update that came across just again minutes ago from the court. And I'll just read part of it. In May 2022, the court suffered one of the worst breaches of trust in its history, the leak of a draft opinion. The leak was no mere misguided attempt at protest. It was a grave assault on the judicial process. Skipping down, for these reasons and others, the court immediately and unanimously agreed that the extraordinary betrayal of trust that took place last May warranted a thorough investigation. And the Chief Justice assigned the task to the Marshal of the Supreme Court and her staff. After months of diligent analysis and forensic evidence and interviews of almost 100 employees, the Marshal's team determined that it no longer needed to investigate with respect to many of the 82 employees who had access to electronic or hard copies of the draft opinion. Scrolling down, the team has to date been unable to identify a person responsible by a preponderance of the evidence. 
They go on to say in this statement that the investigators will continue their work. The marshal and her team will continue to have our full support. That is the statement coming from all of the justices. So in short, they got nothing so far. Sounds like they might have a few suspects. I've narrowed it down to a couple people, but they can't prove any of it beyond a preponderance of evidence standard. And so I guess the search goes on. I mean, what happened is unacceptable. I hope no matter who it is, they find that person eventually and make an example out of them because this type of thing is like Banana Republic institution-destroying stuff. So that's some breaking news as we come on the air. On another totally separate topic, I wanted to talk about a bit of a controversy in the sports world involving the National Hockey League, a player on the Philadelphia Flyers. His name is Ivan Provorov, and he just recently declined to wear a rainbow-themed warm-up jersey for Pride Night. And this has become a big thing. I'm a huge hockey fan. I happen to be gay, so about a 1,000 people sent me this story, wanting my thoughts. I put out a tweet yesterday on the outnumbered couch earlier. I delved into it a bit further. Before I play some of my own sentiments on it, I want you to hear from the player himself, who was asked, hounded by the press, afterwards, you know, why weren't you wearing the jersey? And this was his response, cut 27. Everybody, I respect everybody's choices. My choice is to stay true to myself and my religion. That's all I'm going to say. Someone followed up, what is your religion? He said Russian Orthodox. That was the end of it. I respect everybody. I respect everybody's choices. My choice is to stay true to myself and my religion. That's it. Now, the just furious response from a lot of sports journalists in particular has been ridiculous. You know, people sometimes talk about the sports media as even more left-wing than the news media. And I think it becomes clear that sometimes people in the sports media sort of have envy of some of us in political media. They want to get into these political ideological battles. So when there's a sports hook, they just plunge face first into it. And they were like trying to outdo themselves with outrage about how this guy owes the Flyers and their fans an apology and a donation to this whatever, like equity fund or whatever they're trying to do. Other people saying that he should be suspended from the team and not allowed to play in certain number of games as a consequence. Some people or some other people trying to like point to certain clauses in the contract. Maybe he's in violation of his contract. I think that's highly disputable. And so... I'll just let you hear what I said already on TV. I was asked about this. It was one of our topics. Harris Faulkner came right to me on the issue. And here is how I first started to frame it in Cut 30. I'm a big hockey fan. Many people have sent me this story. I think the most important thing for me to say, especially involving anything mentioning the Philadelphia Flyers, is let's go Devils. (laughs) Secondly, secondly, um, I am all for gaining acceptance for LGBT people in the sports community. I think there's been a long period of uh, a lack of acceptance uh, where people have been hiding in the closet because they feel like that culture won't welcome them. I think that it becomes meaningless to have pandering 
to people like me if it's mandatory, if it's coerced. Huh. If you are wearing something with a rainbow on it because you are being told that you must, it is completely empty to me. It doesn't make me feel more welcome, more empowered as a fan, anything like that. If you want to do it on your own volition, great. Thank you. We appreciate that. Being forced to do it to me, I'm just not interested in that. Had to get the Go Devils in there. Can't stand the Flyers. But to me, just the performative outrage over this is too much. And I said what I said. If you're wearing some solidarity rainbow thing, effectively at the point of a gun, professional gun, how's that supposed to make me feel better? Or gay people feel more welcome? It's not like he said anything offensive or outrageous. He just said, I respect everyone. This is what I'm doing with my views and my religion. By the way, I am willing to bet... I am willing to bet that there are at least some people on the team, whether it's this team or other teams that have done similar things, players on these teams who wear the jersey with the smile, they got the rainbow on, they're checking the box, everything's fine in woke world, and privately they're grumbling to a few people on the team, oh, God, we're wearing the queer shirts again, something like that, behind closed doors, then they put it on, they don't say anything, and there's actual homophobia there. Am I supposed to prefer that because they wore the shirt? Because they're basically required to? Or do I prefer someone who's actually going to say, here's what I'm doing for this reason, I respect everyone, but I'm going to make a different choice here. I know what I personally prefer. Now, it's true that I think pro sports and sort of the jock culture and sports community for a long time has been very homophobic. There's a reason why there's you can count on one hand the number of pro athletes. By the way, zero in the NHL ever. But of the major four sports in America, you can count on one hand the number of active players who have come out. One at the very end of his career in the NBA, and then one in the NFL. I think that's it. I think it's two, ever. Let me let you in on a secret. There have been a lot more gay athletes in those sports over time. A lot. They just haven't said a word because of the intolerance, because of the locker room culture. I'm fine trying to change that and make things more accepting and tolerant. Part of the reason why I was actually really proud of Carl Nassib in the NFL, formerly of Vegas, I think he's with Tampa now, if I'm not mistaken. Active player, sort of at the peak of his career, former Penn State guy. He came out as gay, not as a big, giant thing, just a quick little video, and then he just went about his business playing the game. Like I respect the hell out of that. I thought it was brave for him to do it because literally no one had ever done it before. Some people criticized me. It's not brave. Being gay is easy now in the culture. In some ways, it's easier than ever. In certain areas and communities and lines of work, it's not. Being an NFL player, it's not. Evidence being no one had ever done it before, ever. Right To me, that's meaningful. What's not meaningful is a team telling the players, we're doing Pride Night, wear the damn rainbow, and if or else. And then all these people lining up to say there need to be consequences. I mean, this is America. Coerced speech shouldn't be our thing in this country.
And if you're wearing it because you have to, it doesn't mean that you believe anything. So how is that progress? It's like the appearance of progress. It's fake, superficial progress if it's forced, if it's mandatory. Like a simulacrum of tolerance that you might not actually believe, but you're wearing it because that's what's expected of you. Okay, you know, great. Wow. It gets better, hashtag or whatever. Not interested in that kind of a thing. So then Harris, this is part of the debate now, what should happen to this guy? Harris followed up with that question to me, cut 31. So what do you think should happen then? Nothing. Let the guy go and do his job. He has his own opinions. His comment there that we played I thought was completely reasonable and anodyne. This is the United States of America. He can go play hockey. We can all watch. I will boo him, but not for this. I'll boo him because he's a flyer. (laughs) I'll boo him because he's a flyer. Every Philadelphia flyer should be booed. And all the Rangers while we're at it, too. This is a Devils fan, sorry. That's my take. What should happen? Nothing. People, he owes a, no, he owes nothing. I'm not like now a fan of this guy. Like, oh yeah, wow, amazing. I'm just saying he was honest. He gave his reasons why. He did it in a respectful way. And we should all just be able to move on. I think some of the, and I, one other dumb argument. I saw sort of used against him was that in the past he had worn a worn up a warm up jersey that was like US military themed it was like a salute our troops night and one of these sports writers like oh wow looks like this guy's willing to play dress up for other reasons I'm like yeah cuz I guess he agrees with that one right he's willing to say I support the US military he's not willing to be like Mr Pride that's how Freedom of expression works. That's not, hypo- that's not hypocritical. That's not hypocrisy. That's how it works. Other people saying, oh, he's Russian. He can go back where he came from. All right, if he doesn't like this here, get out. Well, first of all, there's any number of Americans who might not want to just actively wear pride gear. And also, wouldn't that be xenophobia? I'm sure these are people who fancy themselves pristine progressives. If there are some right-wingers telling some, let's say, Muslims to go back where you came from because of something that they had said or they believed, I wonder how that would be received by these very same people. But I guess it's like a white Russian hockey player, so they're like, get the hell out of the country, you bigot. Okay, wow. But also, hate has no home here. Immigrants are people. All lives matter. Whatever, whatever they do. All their little, little slogans. It's pick and choose. And just this, like the outrage Olympics among some of these commentators in sports, craving meaning in their lives, apparently. Trying to show how they're the wokest of them all. I'm sure they don't care at all about what I have to say about this. And I'm just a huge hockey fan who's gay. The very person who ought to be offended based on their stupid rules, and I'm not. I probably just don't count. Eh. Self-loathing, whatever the, whatever the attacks are, I'm used to them. But because it's a hockey story plus this angle, I wanted to address it. People have been asking me, so there you go. I wonder if it'll come up on Gutfeld tonight. Eh, I have my suspicions.
Guy Benson Show just getting started. So much to get to. Alec Baldwin in real trouble. We'll cover that. So much more. Stay with us. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Our lead story, actually, on Outnumbered today was these charges coming against Alec Baldwin, famous actor, in that incident on the set of Rust, a film he was shooting. He's been charged with two counts now of involuntary manslaughter in the death of Helena Hutchins. And Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, the armorer on the film, also charged with two counts. Baldwin's attorney telling Fox News Digital the charges represent, quote, a terrible miscarriage of justice. I was shocked that it took this long. Like, the shooting was... What, 15 months ago? Finally getting charges now? It's like October of 2021. We're now in mid to late January 2023. And it sounds like there was a lot of dysfunction on the set. Obviously, multiple things went wrong and someone is dead. So there has to be accountability. I think it's pretty obvious some sort of crime was committed, even though it was a horrible accident. I don't think anyone intended for someone to die. And yet... For some reason, there were live rounds of ammunition on the set. I don't understand that at all. Never have. And there were supposed to be multiple people who checked to make sure there was nothing in the gun. That failed twice over. And then Baldwin says he didn't, but you'd guess pulled the trigger, and this woman's dead. Now, I would be a little bit more sympathetic Like, I'm not going to defend him or his politics. He seems like a hothead in general, but he was obviously shaken up. He didn't mean for this to result in someone's death. If his whole argument was, I relied on two professionals who told me the gun was empty, and then the gun wasn't empty. Like, imagine being in that position. I would be more sympathetic there, except he went on national TV with George Stephanopoulos and claimed he never pulled the trigger. Like, the gun just magically went off in his hands. And I guess the FBI looked into it, or there was, a, there was a forensic analysis done that suggested that, yes, of course, the trigger was pulled. So, like, that seems like a very dubious claim to make, which makes me less sympathetic. He was also, I think, executive producer of the film with all this dysfunction on set. A bunch of people had quit because of the conditions. And I guess they're still making the movie. They're resuming production. That's also very strange to me. So an update in a story involving a celebrity alleged crime there's a dead body just a horrible story we're following it on the guy benson show back with more next out of the gates and ready to go hey it's hutton with row hot mike is here on the outkick network we've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion and it's available wherever you find your audio daily analysis and news he is hot i am mike actually my <laughs> name is chad his name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. Welcome back to the Guy Benson Show. With us now, Jennifer Griffin, national security correspondent here at Fox News. Jennifer, it's good to have you back. Thank you, Guy. 
So a pretty significant development just a few days ago, helicopter crash killing the interior minister in Ukraine, also 17 others uh, in Kyiv. What's the significance? That's a pretty high-ranking official. Well, in fact, it's the most high-ranking Ukrainian official to be killed uh, since the war began um, with the Russian invasion a year ago. The interior minister was a very close Zelensky ally. Uh, what's interesting about that position is he oversaw the national police and the border guards, and they are heavily involved in the fighting at the front lines. So uh, this was a big loss for uh, Zelensky and the Ukrainian government. And right now, I believe that the head of the police has stepped in to take over his jobs as interior minister. Um, but the, the helicopter crash is under investigation. There are no signs, uh, immediate signs, that it was brought down by a Russian missile, per se. But they are investigating. They expect it'll take weeks because they'll have to look at the crash site and, and do the investigation in the midst of, obviously, a war going on. So that could be several weeks before we know what caused the crash. It could have been visibility. It could have been a uh, you know, a line that it w- was hit. It w- went down in a, a suburb of, of Kiev. And what was particularly tragic about this uh, this uh, crash is that, it, of course, it crashed near a kindergarten mm. and, and uh, dozens of children were injured. I do understand that some of the injured have been taken out of the country for treatment. So this might have been a pure accident, but maybe not. And as you say, it might be a while until we know. It's something that I'm sure... The Ukrainian government is taking extremely seriously given the implications. Meanwhile, there's been more training, more weapons heading from the United States to Ukraine uh, and some of the training happening elsewhere as well. Talk about some of these stepped up efforts. Jennifer. Well, this is a really key moment in the war, uh, Guy, as as we're about to approach the one-year anniversary on February 24th. What you're seeing right now are preparations being made by both sides, the Ukrainians and the Russians. There's an expected Russian spring offensive. The Russians have done very badly so far in the first year, much worse than what Putin anticipated. And so, uh, you know, you don't have to be a a military genius to know that they're going to make a pretty big push once uh, the spring comes and once uh, and 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 so what you're seeing right now tomorrow there's a very important meeting it's uh, part of what's called the contact group 50 nations the mil- the heads of the militaries and and uh, ministers of defense and secretary of defense Austin will be leading a contact group in Ramstein uh, in Germany at the bar- base there and it's basically like a donors conference for weapons and everybody is sort of going through their stockpiles all the NATO members and other allies and looking for what trying to match up what Ukraine needs right now. Ukraine has been very clear that what they want are tanks. And the U.S. has stopped short of providing tanks uh, because they don't want to escalate, A, with with Russia. They don't want this to spread. Remember, from the beginning, President Biden has given the military three goals, not to allow the conflict to spread uh, to NATO countries, to have any sort of Article 5 violation that would then uh, cause NATO to have to react and, and get involved with their militaries, not to allow for a nuclear war to break out, and, and not to have U.S. troops fighting inside Ukraine. So what the Ukraine have done so well is that any weaponry that the U.S. has provided, whether it's the HIMARS or or the Stingers or the Javelins, they've used it incredibly proficiently, and they've taken on the Russian military. At this moment in time, Zelensky believes that he needs tanks. And so you've seen the Brits were the first to, to donate, I think it's a dozen Challenger tanks. And the discussion tomorrow in Ramstein, Germany, is 
to for for countries like um, uh, Finland and uh, has already said, and some of the Baltic states have said they will give these Leopard uh, tanks that the Germans have. The German uh, the German um, uh, Chancellor Olaf Scholz has said that he will give tanks. He's very concerned. Obviously, Germany is concerned about the war uh, coming to its doorstep and for Russia taking on Germany directly in any way, either economically or, or through other nefarious means. But he's nervous about providing tanks without the U.S. providing tanks. The U.S. has stopped short of wanting to provide the M1 Abrams tanks because then they've had a number of excuses that they take a lot of maintenance, that they use uh, jet fuel, uh, which is hard to come by at, at this point in time in the war, and, and that they think that it, it will be – so they, they have stopped short, uh, for one reason or another, of providing the Abrams. What they are providing is you ex- we will expect a $2 billion announcement tomorrow of more striker vehicles, Bradley fighting vehicles. These will be good for transporting troops to the front line safely and along the front lines. Uh, but you are seeing a massive push right now. And the biggest change guy that I've heard in terms of the behind-the-scenes talk is that for the first time since the war began, the Biden administration is considering uh, allowing, giving Ukraine the, the weaponry and the ra- range of weaponry that will allow it to uh, take on the Russian forces in Crimea. That is a big, sh- that is a sea change in terms of thinking within the Pentagon and the White House. Uh, we'll see what comes of that, but those reports are starting to sort of leak out that there are more and more discussions of that, what that would mean for the spring. The Russians are using Crimea as a basing. Uh, that's where they're firing many of the Iranian, launching many of the Iranian drones that mm-hmm. are causing such trouble. And so uh, to cut off the supply lines there and really divide the Russian military in half and cut them off from their bases, that would be a very significant um, and very uh, smart move from the part from the side of the Ukrainians, particularly if the goal is to eventually allow the Ukrainians to gain as much territory in the next six months to try and then get Putin to the negotiating table because his losses will be so great in the next six months. That's why there's a race to get as much weaponry as fast as possible to the Ukrainians. Yeah, before the spring comes. Jennifer, you've been reporting on a story here for a while as well on a separate front involving Afghanistan and the border crisis is actually sort of a confluence of events this Afghan Special Forces Commando who is trying to get into the U.S., um, he was able to get here through our southern border, and now he's being held. Just give us some background on this individual and then let us know what is happening. What's the status? Well, this is a very frustrating story that we first brought to our audience in mid-December when we were made aware of it. This is a highly trained, U.S.-trained Afghan commando, Abdul Wasi Safi, who's being held right now in the Eden Detention Facility in Texas. This is a part of the federal prison system. And Abdul Wasi Safi stayed to fight the Taliban after the U.S. pulled out. He didn't stay long because the, obviously the commandos, uh, the commandos did a lot of the fighting. They know all of the, you know, special techniques. CTPs that the U.S. military uses. He was vetted. He had biometrics done and was vetted before being given that training. After the U.S. pulled out, the Taliban started coming for any of those highly trained commandos. Uh, They were hunting for them, and he knew his life was in danger. So he escaped to Pakistan and through somehow managed to get a visa to Brazil. 
and he made a an harrowing journey through 10 countries from Brazil up to the Mexican border with the United States, hoping that he could come across the border, ask for asylum, and he believed that the U.S. military and the U.S. would, would um, welcome him with open arms because of what he had done in the fight in Afghanistan. His brother had been an Afghan translator for the U.S. military. He lives in Texas in the Houston area and has citizenship now from all his years of service to the U.S. military. He thought he would be welcomed. Instead, uh, as he came across illegally, there's no question about it, he came across with about 70 other people who were then released into uh, DHS custody. He was taken because he was from one of the countries that is on a watch list, Afghanistan. He was treated uh, differently, put into the federal system, and now we've talked to him for the last month. First of all, he ex- he experienced extreme. Uh, he had bl- um, very he he was hit by Panamanian security forces and had head injuries along the way. He was beaten and tortured along the way through the car- you know having through cartel territory, et cetera. Not a new story there. But what is really surprising to me is that since we raised this issue, he has not been seen by a medical doctor. We've asked for a medical doctor to see him. He's still bleeding from his ear where we think there's an untreated head injury. He has dental work needed because his jaw was broken when he, along the way. And more importantly, we, he really feels that his asylum case should be heard and that, that keeping him in the federal uh penitentiary system, and he hasn't had a hearing yet. He's supposed to have his first hearing on February 14th. Um, It's a case where uh, you have lawmakers on both sides. You have Sheila Jackson Lee, Democrat from Houston, and Mike Waltz and Dan Crenshaw, who are all calling for President Biden to pardon this commando. It is very easy. The FBI has interviewed him. It's very easy to check his story, to uh, uh, check his biometrics, with the, which the U.S. military has. His background checks out, according to people I know who've met with him. It's untenable that the, this this he is so psychologically debilitated right now he's saying that he didn't even the Taliban wouldn't have treated him the way he's been treated through these 10 countries and now here being imprisoned in a pretty rough uh, uh, jail situation down in Texas I mean it's just outrageous honestly and I'm glad that you're on it Jen and that other people across the aisle in positions of power are asking the administration to do something I mean Talk about the very least that a president could do having exited that country the way that he did, leaving tens of these tens of thousands of these people behind. And now this guy's rotting in a jail cell. It's, uh, given everything else in the context down there at the border, it's just infuriating. It's an important story. Jennifer Griffin covering it. National security correspondent here at Fox News. Jennifer, we do appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Guy. I was going to say this. I'm going to give my editorial comment. I didn't want to have Jen attached to it because she's on the news side. Think about it. This president, commander-in-chief, told our people in Afghanistan that they would be able to come home safely no matter what. American citizens, valid U.S. residents, and Afghans who had helped us, risking their lives to do so. He promised they would all be able to come home in a safe, orderly transition. Instead, we remember what happened two summers ago. Total disgrace. Chaos, the Taliban taking over. Billions and billions of dollars of equipment, you know, war equipment, handed over to a terrorist organization. The country handed to a terrorist organization. 
and tens of thousands of people left behind. Hundreds of American citizens left behind initially. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people that we promised would be able to get out of there were left. Now, here's one of them who gets word correctly that you can get into America through the southern border. The vast majority of asylum claims in the border crisis are bogus, the vast majority. And the over, over, overwhelming majority of them are rejected because they're bogus. But they're given a script by the coyotes and by the cartels. You say that you're escaping these difficult conditions and you're seeking asylum, and that then puts you on a path to sometimes years of waiting in America. The Biden people put you on a bus or a plane, fly you everywhere, like wherever you want to go. And at some point down the line, you're supposed to show up for a court appearance. That's the ticket into this country that has been used by just huge numbers of people over the last two years. So this guy, who was trained by our people, put his life on the line to fight alongside our military, is able to get his way out of that country, now controlled by a terrorist regime that wants to kill him, get his way all the way down to Brazil, somehow figure out how to get to Brazil, then take this horrible journey north to the U.S., and it sounds like he was badly hurt along the way in various capacities. God knows what happens to women and children making this journey. We know it's horrible. We keep incentivizing it. We being the Biden administration is what I'm talking about. Then he finally gets to the U.S. border. He actually has a valid claim to asylum in this country based on what he did. And unlike all these other people who are gotaways or who are like caught and released immediately after being processed and flown to the city of their choice on taxpayer dime, this guy is sitting in prison. It's like a combination of the worst scandals and failures of the Biden administration encapsulated in one person. Fortunately, the injustice of it is so profound that it's obvious enough that even like Sheila Jackson Lee and then Republicans are all on the same team being like, this is absurd. How this guy hasn't already been pardoned and released and given medical attention is absolutely beyond me. Maybe President Empathy will get on this at some point, if only to make the story go away, because all it's doing is reminding people of his Afghanistan crisis and his border crisis. How many criminals posing as, like, family men with kids that aren't even theirs have been released into this country because of the border crisis chaos, but this guy, now he's languishing in a prison. What a thank you from America, having already broken the solemn promise that we made to him. And I know that, like, you know, this might sound harsh and overdramatic, but this is on one person. And it's the president of the United States. This is on him. I would have trouble sleeping at night. I think Joe Biden's thoughts right now are too preoccupied with attacking Republicans and being personally frustrated at his own victimization in the mishandling of classified documents like four or five times over. Good stuff. The adults are back in charge, right? Smart power, whatever. Just awful. It's a disgrace. Take a break. We'll come back on The Guy Benson Show.
The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back on the Guy Benson Show. I just mentioned at the top of the hour that we have a lot coming up here on the program. One of the issues that we have coming up that we're going to address in the next hour is a woke education controversy in Virginia. Yesterday, we talked about a woke education controversy in Florida. Opened the show with it yesterday. And I said, I suspect you're going to hear more about it. Florida rejecting this AP African-American Studies course. Well, I'm looking at CNN right now on my screen in the studio, and that is the issue that they're covering. I told you it was coming. Looked like they actually interviewed Chris Rufo for that package, which is at least worthwhile. He's going to give an informed other side of this to what I would imagine might be the company line over there. If you missed that, you can go back and listen. It's the opening segment, first segment on yesterday's podcast. Meanwhile, I saw this. Mayor Eric Adams in New York, he had been down at the border calling it a national crisis, saying the federal government needs to do more. Does Muriel Bowser in D.C. feel the same way? She was asked some questions by our colleague Hillary Vaughn. She said everyone has to work harder. But then she started making excuses for the president, cut 26, I think the president can't change the law. That's the Congress's job. Um, and so I, I expect everybody from the administration to the Congress um, to work. Okay, so, so here's the, the thing. That the is a dodge. It is true that Congress is responsible for changing the law. And I think that the law needs to be changed on a number of fronts involving immigration. We probably disagree on how to go about that. But Biden has a lot of power unilaterally on the executive level to make things a lot better by uncanceling successful policies. He cannot be let off the hook for that and just punting it over to Congress. We knew what worked. He canceled it. He can undo it if he wants to. Another hour coming up. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a new hour on the Guy Benson Show in New York City today. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast free every day on demand when the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. We'll be on Gutfeld tonight. Full hour. Should be fun. All sorts of hijinks coming up. That's 11 p.m. Eastern Time, Fox News Channel. Fox News alert. The Dow down again today, 252 points, closing out at 33,044. With that, let's get to our next guest, Congressman Mike Gallagher, Republican of Wisconsin, the 8th District. He joins us once again. And, Congressman, it is great to have you back here. Great to be with you, Guy. So you have been tapped by Speaker McCarthy to lead this new committee involving the threat and challenges around communist China. Talk about this committee and what your vision is for it. 
I think there are two, at least two areas where the committee can have an immediate impact. One is just injecting a sense of urgency into this competition with China, what I've called a new Cold War. I do not think we're moving fast enough. I think we're falling behind in key areas. And so the Select Committee on China can be the platform that makes the case directly to the American people as to why this matters, why we need to move faster, why we need to attack this with a sense of urgency, and do so in a way that's unique in terms of our communication strategy and moves beyond just the traditional boring congressional hearing that not even the members themselves stay awake for. That's point one. Point two is because China is, you know, our, the U.S.-China competition is a whole of society effort, China-related legislation gets referred to multiple committees. So a lot of good ideas die because they just fall through the cracks. So we can play the coordinating role, sort of acting like the speaker's policy accelerator and incubator on China-related policy and legislation to make sure that even in divided government with narrow control of the House, we are putting together a record of legislative accomplishment on China. So those are two areas where we can have an immediate impact and the speakers asked us to be immediately effective. What's the goal in terms of bipartisanship? Is this something where Republicans are going to take the lead and if Democrats want to be on board, uh, then that's great? Or is part of the mission statement to make this bipartisan in its entirety? The mission statement is to make it bipartisan uh, in its entirety, to, to, to forge bipartisan support for the actions that are necessary to defend ourselves from the aggression of the Chinese Communist Party. Speaker McCarthy has repeatedly and explicitly said, said that he wants this to be a bipartisan effort. He's reached out to the Democratic minority leader, Hakeem Jeffries. He's asked him to take it seriously, to appoint serious, sober members. I've had multiple conversations with Democratic colleagues who are interested. I want this to be partisan, a bipartisan. Uh, though we are going to disagree on some key issues, I believe our foreign policy is stronger when it rests on a bipartisan foundation. So that's the intent. I think we're going to have really good, capable, serious members on our side, and I hope the Democrats will do the same in terms of who they appoint. Um, and if they don't want to take it seriously, if they want to play games with the committee, I think that will be very unfortunate, um, but that's not going to be our fault. Do you have a say in who gets put on on the Republican side? Like, how does that work? I uh, have I've, I told... Speaker McCarthy, some of my preferences, I sort of generated a list of options for him that I know he took seriously. But at the end of the, at the, end of the day, it's his call because it's a select committee. So like the House Intelligence Committee, he appoints all the members. Um, but it's been a very productive conversation between me and him, and he's been very generous in terms of reaching out for my advice. I'm tempted to make a joke about someone who should be on the committee, the former U.S. ambassador to China, George Santos, uh, but I'm not going to make it. I'm not going there. Congressman, I do want to ask you about a tweet from Speaker McCarthy earlier. I know this is something you've been talking about for a while. Finally, it's coming to pass. It really happened as soon as the Republicans took over, but he tweeted, no more proxy voting. Effective immediately. Members of Congress have to show up to work if they want their vote to count. To me, this was long overdue, a long time coming. You've been beating this drum for, like, months and months. Proxy vote, I mean, it must, it's been years at this point because yeah. it was initially uh, started as a temporary pandemic measure way back. That must have been in spring of 2020, if my timing is correct. Uh, and then, of course, it just kept getting extended and extended. And what we saw, uh, really on both sides of the aisle, uh, 
was members of Congress abusing it. We had members proxy voting while they were in weddings in southern France. We had members proxy voting while they were going off to fundraisers in Florida. Uh, and keep in mind, every time you proxy vote, you sign your name to a piece of paper that says, I'm physically unable to get to the House floor because of the threat posed by the the pandemic emergency. <laughs> right. so they were on were boats lying and stuff. Every time they did it, it really just made a mockery of the institution. You need to be there. You need to vote in person. You know, telework may work for certain industries, but being a federal legislator is not one of them. There's been a bit of a flap over committee assignments and the Democrats stripped some of your Republican colleagues last Congress of their assignments because of things they had done or said. Now there is seemingly retribution coming in the other direction. Ilhan Omar, Eric Swalwell. Adam Schiff, I believe. What's your take on that? Well, I think it shows kind of a broader issue, which is once one side does something, there's almost always this inevitable escalation that happens. And all of a sudden, this is kind of like the new norm in Congress. And I think that's that's actually really unfortunate or, or really leads nowhere, which is why I was so troubled when Pelosi made this move. So I, I understand the desire to get even on our side, but at some point we're going to have to figure out how we end that cycle of escalation. That being said, when it comes to the Intelligence Committee, which I, I referenced before, there the speaker has enormous latitude. And I think you can make a credible case that given uh, Swalwell's relationship, let's just say, with Fang Fang um, and given Adam Schiff's conduct on the committee – that it's in the interest of the institution not to have them yeah. on the committee. Um, so that, that to me, is a slightly different case. But if we're going to spend all our time over the next few years in Congress, just you know, one side removing this person because they don't like that person or this side removing that person, that just creates kind of a chaotic institution. The speaker battle was long, 15 ballots, finally got around to it. Now there are some new rules that are at play within your conference and then widely uh, for the House of Representatives in general. I keep saying as we look ahead to the debt ceiling showdown, which is coming, this could be you know pretty wild again if the Republicans are going to get any sort of meaningful concessions here using the debt ceiling as a moment to do it. I feel like it has to be reasonable and unified. I just wonder – is reasonable and unified something that this caucus is going to be capable of uh, on a big stage? You know, I actually, this may sound polyanth, I think it is, because I think everybody recognizes the stakes here. And, and I don't think anyone, you know, maybe with a few exceptions here or there, uh, really wants a, a default situation, because that would be painful, that would be uh, chaotic. Um, and I say this as someone who's never voted for a debt increase, because I always felt like it made sense to pair it with, some meaningful, sensible long-term reform. I just think we got to figure out what is what is our ask. It has to be clear. It can't be too complicated. To me, I'd like to see something like the Trust Act, which is a bill I have. It's a bicameral bill, a bipartisan bill that sets up a series of rescue task forces for all the trust funds that are going insolvent. Alternatively or additionally, you could pair it with actual budget process reform. There, our new budget chairman, Jody Arrington, has a ton of really good ideas. I'd be in favor of moving to biannual budgeting or something. There's a bill that Ron Johnson has that involves attrition of federal government workforce by just not rehiring people that, re- that retire over time. To me, those are, those are in the realm 
of the reasonable that we could package together and have a unified ask. You're right. It has to be unified. It's got to be simple because we're going to have to communicate the stakes and the substance to the American people. Yeah. And if you say, you know, as you just did, there are a few exceptions here or there who might be fine with a default. I mean, all you need is a few. Right. If that's what it takes, I think the number is five. Right. So that's sort of the magic number to be thinking about. Meanwhile, Congressman, the biggest political story now for two weeks has been the classified document scandal involving President Biden. We're really not getting very many satisfactory answers at all from the White House on anything. We've gotten a few statements read by Joe Biden off a piece of paper. Uh, When he's gone off the script a little bit, he's gotten himself into trouble. Nothing, just a brick wall in Corrine Jean-Pierre just saying that they're not allowed to comment, even though the Justice Department has debunked that. I guess that's their line. I just wonder... Are we going to really get a fulsome picture of what's happened here? And why is it that there has been so much deference given to the president's lawyers to do all of the searching and, you know, all of the updates like there's some sort of neutral arbiter here when, in fact, their literal job is to protect him? Yeah, Andy McCarthy made a convincing point that this is sort of a a strategy that goes back to the Clintons of just inserting lawyers into every part of the process. And, you know, your average member of Congress and average American doesn't really understand that, you know, in certain cases, lawyers, you know, they'll hide behind client attorney privilege. But, you know, in, in certain cases, that doesn't really apply at all. So I think it's deliberately intended to obscure the case. That being said, I think it's going to be really hard for them to put a lid on this uh, at this point. If for no other reason than the president himself and really every Democrat in America went so hard in condemning President Trump for having classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, now that this story is out there, now that Merrick Garland has appointed a special counsel who seems like a legitimate, you know, Trump appointee, a high integrity person, I just think it's going to be even, even, you know, by hiring an army of lawyers to obscure the case, I think it's going to be hard to keep it hitting. And we hidden, and we keep seeing, you know, a steady drumbeat of newly discovered classified documents in this garage. I mean, Biden must have a massive garage in Delaware <laughs> because they keep just discovering new documents here or there. It's just absolutely crazy. That's the final thing I say, guys. Just some of the the excuses we've heard from the president have just been laughable. You know, this idea that the garage was locked is, is so silly. It's so stupid. I mean, it, it really – I was talking with a, a company in my district who's a defense subcontractor yesterday, and they have to invest millions of dollars in cybersecurity because they're dealing with controlled, unclassified information. And here you have the commander-in-chief mm-hmm. – well, I guess at the time he was vice president – just being so reckless. It sends a terrible message. It's the opposite of leading by example. So we got to get to the bottom of it. It's bad for national security um, and uh, ultimately makes a mockery of our classification laws. Can you tell us anything about this? And we've mentioned it on the show briefly, this imprisoned Navy officer in Japan and any update there. It seems like that's a real travesty. And, and from what I understand, he's still locked up. Yeah, Lieutenant Alconis, I think the important thing for the American people to know is that um, you know, he has an exemplary record. There's, there's absolutely no evidence that um, there was any substance abuse or alcohol involved. And what is a tragic accident? It's this most likely... Um, uh, explanation here is that he fell asleep um, and he was with his family and, and two Japanese citizens died. And so we don't want to minimize that tragedy. The reason this is, is so hard to negotiate is because we're dealing with, you know, uh, very specific Japanese laws and customs that we need to be sensitive to. But my hope is we can bring him home. I actually met with our ambassador to Japan last week and, and discussed this issue. And I think, you know, his message, which I actually agree with, and I think the message that American legislators need to be sending to our friends in Japan is that, 
our alliance is, is really right now at its strongest point in modern history and potentially ever. It would be a shame if this one issue gets in the way of more fulsome collaboration. I think we have to bring this guy home. I think there's a way we can do it where we satisfy Japanese concerns over sovereignty and satisfy the, the sort of the victim's families here. It's a delicate diplomatic endeavor, but I, I got to believe it's possible to get him home. By the way, very quickly, 10 seconds. When can we expect this China committee coming full circle to actually get underway and start your business? Well, I'm hoping to have members appointed this week, and then we need to do some logistical work on getting office space, getting a clerk and things like that so we can hold hearings. So I'm hoping at the latest we're having our first hearing at the beginning of March. But All, right. I want to do- All right. We'll keep an eye on that. Congressman Mike Gallagher, Republican, Wisconsin, very important work. Always appreciate your time, sir. Have you back soon on The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We're back on The Guy Benson Show. So yesterday on the program, you might recall, I played a soundbite from Special Report. I was on the panel with Mark Thiessen the other day. And Thiessen just kind of went off on Corinne Jean-Pierre, saying that she was terrible at her job. It was very blunt. Can't really disagree. And some people might have wondered, oh, is he being overly harsh? Is this just a conservative criticizing the press secretary of a Democratic administration. Well, here's a story from Mediaite. Headline, White House correspondents reportedly fed up with Jean-Pierre. Briefings, quote, a painful waste of time. So it's kind of getting ugly. The White House press corps has, according to a new report, quote, grown exasperated with press secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre. This is coming from CNN. Quoting one unnamed reporter, who I guess is a veteran in this field, speaking of Jean-Pierre, quote, she is arguably the least effective White House press secretary of the television era, which is a long time, going back many decades at this point. Another White House reporter telling CNN, quote, you just get the feeling that you're wasting your time. And whatever is in front of her in the binder is all she's going to say no matter how many times you ask the question. It's just a painful waste of time. This story goes on saying that Jean-Pierre actually answered certain questions with inaccurate information on the whole Biden documents front. Quote, there's an expectation when you say something, it's going to be true. That's been the biggest credibility hit for her. It's answering a question in a way that ends up not being true. The White House has responded to all of this, clapping back, saying a lot of this sounds more like theater criticism than concern about ability to report facts for the American people's benefit. That's the White House statement, which isn't a good statement because they're not able to report facts because she's not saying anything pretending like there's some rule that she can't comment because it's an ongoing investigation. As I mentioned earlier today on TV, on Outnumbered, we had the president prejudge an investigation into Border Patrol agents over a fake whipping smear. Remember that in Del Rio? He basically declared them guilty before they even had an investigation. He commented on that, but, oh, here, we can't comment. 
Justice Department. We can know it's an active investigation. The Justice Department has said, by the way, White House is free to comment on the underlying facts of the case. And they're just hiding behind it anyway. She's very bad at the job. She's also not being given anything to work with. And that combination of lack of talent and incompetence and bad facts, it's just not good. And they're making it seem like, oh, it's just so petty for anyone to be unhappy with what she's doing. Just reading the same thing out of the binder. On Kennedy's show last night, Kennedy said she wonders, is there anything in front of Corrine Jean-Pierre at the podium other than an Applebee's menu? And I joke that the binder seems pretty thick, so it has to be a Cheesecake Factory menu. You were joking back and forth. Well, the president takes cheesecake very, very seriously. Arguably the least effective White House press secretary in the era of television. That sound about right to you? There's trouble in paradise. Left on left violence. The Guy Benson Show resumes after this break. A scandal grows in Virginia. We've got details coming up. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast free every day. So yesterday we opened the show talking about a woke education controversy in Florida. I think that is just starting to brew. If you missed it, you should go back and listen to the opening monologue on the free podcast. Governor DeSantis and his administration saying preemptively no, they will not allow this new AP placement class on African-American studies to be taught in Florida schools for a number of reasons that we delved into. That's Florida. Meanwhile, in Virginia, we have been following this now for weeks, a big controversy scandal involving Fairfax County, one of the bluest counties in the state, where now 17 high schools have admitted that they withheld and delayed for a long period of time National Merit Scholar honors notifications to the kids who earned them. It's about 3% of the country. It's the elite performers at the very top. And because this district is obsessed with quote-unquote equity, and in fact they've adopted a mission statement calling for equal outcomes for every student, which is impossible and immoral. Equal outcomes is not realistic. In fact, it is actively bad. Give people equal opportunity. Don't push for equal outcomes because you will reduce outcomes, inevitably, if that's the case. You are deliberately, I would say, crushing excellence, punishing it. And someone decided in Fairfax County, and there's an active investigation into this by the state, thank goodness. Governor Youngkin called for it. Attorney General Meares is on it. Someone decided that it's unfair that some kids got these honors, earned these accolades academically through their own performances. So they said they were just going to wait. They weren't going to give the kids that information in a timely manner during college application season because it was just potentially too, what, traumatizing emotionally to the kids 97% or whatever who didn't get it? It's just fairness and equity. Sorry, high achievers. 
Sucks to be you. You don't really need to know. I've been thinking a lot about this because, and we actually mentioned it yesterday here with Dagan McDowell, it wasn't that long ago in my mind that I was applying to colleges, and I applied ultimately just to four. I applied early decision to my number one choice, Northwestern. Got in, thank God. I was desperate to go, and it was great. I love that place, despite some of the flaws. I remember the excitement of getting the acceptance letter. No one was home. I was the only person home when it came in. I was so freaked out about it, it didn't even occur to me that it was a a large envelope, which usually is a good sign, not the little rejection envelope. And also the folder, once I opened it, was a big purple folder that said welcome on it. It just, I didn't even see that. I opened the folder and looked at the letter, and then it said congratulations, and then I went nuts. So it took me, like, way too long to realize that I had gotten in And then I went, like, running around the house yelling at the top of my lungs. No one was home. I wanted to tell someone there was no one. I was like, do I run next door and tell a neighbor? So that moment was a huge moment in my life, especially when I was younger. It's something that I still think about occasionally. And for that reason, imagine being a kid, a high-achieving kid in one of these schools, who works really hard or is blessed with all these gifts or whatever. I don't think I I was a national honor roll person, not a national merit scholar, I think. I don't 100% remember, so I won't claim. I'm not going to George Santos this thing and just say, yes, I was actually the top national merit scholar in the nation. Little known fact. They send you a crown made of solid gold. I still have it. Actually, I sold it for $2 million. I bought a mansion in Malibu. Like, I just keep going. Not going to do that. But I was like a good student, not at the absolute tippy top of my class. But some of these kids were. The environment to try to get into schools these days, especially some of these elite colleges, it is more competitive and ferocious than ever. It is crazy looking at some of the scores and the numbers and the resumes of kids who were just flat-out rejected from some of these top schools. So imagine that you have applied early and you got rejected from your dream school. And maybe for all you know, and sometimes there are very close calls. I worked in admissions at Northwestern as a senior. And you would see some of this stuff. I gave tours and then I was like a senior counselor, whatever the term was. There are some people who are like right on the fence of maybe. And some of them get a yes and some of them get a no. And what if you're in that group or your kid or your grandkid is in that group of people who was teetering right on the brink of the dream school acceptance and one more additional significant meaningful achievement might have made a difference and it wasn't on the college application on the resume because your kid didn't know that he or she had earned it because some adult bureaucrat somewhere felt like it was unfair to other kids to tell your student that he or she had earned it in time. That is outrageous. That is conceivably a life-altering decision being made for terrible reasons by some adult somewhere who then lied about it. This is the other thing about this investigation that I'm interested in. At first, it was just Thomas Jefferson High School, which has had a whole bunch of woke stuff recently. Oh, it was just TJ. Here goes TJ again. They said, oh, it was a one-time human error. That is what the excuse was at first. 
when it finally got exposed. Then it became three schools, if I recall correctly. Then all of a sudden it was seven schools. Then all of a sudden it was 16 schools. And then I saw, I think it was today or yesterday, up to 17. What a disgrace. So they're investigating it in the Yunkin administration. Yunkin saying that apparently some of these administrators or whomever made these decisions, quote, have a maniacal focus on equal outcomes for all students at all costs. Yep. One of the reporters down in D.C. who's actually on this, a guy called Nick Minock at the local Channel 7 ABC, he's one of the only guys covering any of this stuff. He blew the cover off of that crazy LGBT bill where they were going to maybe, like, charge parents with crimes for not affirming their kids' sexual or gender identities. The Democrats were going to introduce that. He exposed it. He got the woman who wrote the bill to admit what it was. It was on TV. Then the Democrats went running from it because there was a huge backlash. That was this same reporter. It's amazing what one reporter asking some questions of people who normally don't get scrutiny, what someone like that can accomplish. He pointed out, Minock did, from ABC locally, that the Fairfax County School Board, which is up for election this year, I would point out, 2023 in Virginia, the school board, this is now a national story. Right, I saw earlier today, Bill Bennett was on America Reports talking about this. Yesterday, Glenn Youngkin was on the same show talking about this. It's a national story, as it should be. The school board in that county has not weighed in on any of this. Nick Minock, this reporter I'm talking about, tweeting, has anyone heard from the Fairfax County School Board on the national merit controversy? The story has received national attention for about a month now, and the Fairfax County School Board hasn't released a statement or said anything about the matter, to my knowledge. And I think as of today, that's still true. I wonder if there's a cover-up underway. It seems like the initial cover-up didn't work. Just like... In neighboring Loudoun County, another blue county in northern Virginia, there was a big cover-up of the sexual assault scandal affecting multiple high schools there. Remember that? And the New York Times at the time published a column saying this is a big lie from the right about what was happening. Barack Obama came in campaigning for Terry McAuliffe and called it a phony culture war. Then Glenn Youngkin won, thank goodness, ordered an official special investigation into it, and the outcome of that investigation was so damning that multiple people were fired and charged with crimes because of the multiple sexual assaults that were lied about and covered up because of a political agenda in that county. And, like, the father of one of the rape victims was treated as the bad guy by the district attorney out there, just, like, totally outrageous. What is going on in Northern Virginia? And one of the things that makes me shudder is, truly, I do wonder if Glenn Youngkin had not won that election, if it had been like two or three points the other direction, Terry McAuliffe and his buddies in the education bureaucracy running the show still in Virginia, as they now have for years, would we know any of this stuff? Would there be any investigation into either of these scandals? Or would they get cover from above most of the media just shrugging as they generally do anyway. I think there's a good case to be made that this is a prime example of elections having consequences.
And boy, Youngkin campaigned as education being a number one issue for him. And he is delivering on that issue. And he's building a pretty good approval rating in the process because he's not being absurd about it. In these cases, all he's doing is applying pressure and requesting and ordering investigations into things that absolutely deserve it. 17 high schools now from one an isolated incident, a human error. Now it's 17. Systematic is the word. This injustice done to kids in the name of equity and racial justice. Just disgusting. We might not know anything about that if McAuliffe had won. So Yunkin, I mentioned, was on the news channel yesterday discussing this. And he, I think, framed it pretty well in Cut 14. What started uh, years ago in Loudoun County is ground zero for standing up for parents' rights Mm -hmm. and recognizing that the systematic driving of equity at all costs was damaging students is clearly in Fairfax County now as well. And, John, I would expand your comments. We, we, we now are led to believe that there are three counties, our three largest counties in Virginia, with 16 schools that failed to notify students of national merit recognition. And I'm taking action. So, first of all, our attorney general, as you said, Jason Miares, is undertaking a full investigation to get to the bottom of why this happened. And meanwhile, I'm sending legislation to our General Assembly today to make it mandatory, mandatory, that schools notify parents and students of awards, recognitions, and scholarship opportunities as soon as they know. How pathetic that you would even need this law. And I think they need it. They've proven that they need it. You can't withhold good news from people for equity reasons. (laughs) Because it might affect their lives. These are kids. So that was yesterday. He said the number was 16 over three counties. And as I said, I believe the number is now up to 17. He went on talking about the injustice of this. Governor Youngkin cut 16. It's just absolutely atrocious for families. And it is unacceptable, clearly, to, to withhold this kind of information to students who are excelling when they want to apply to colleges. I mean, uh, this is described is as a golden criminal? ticket when you're a national when you're a national merit finalist. We, the attorney general is investigating all of this under under the Virginia Human Rights Act, and uh, we're going to find out. But uh, there clearly is a real suggestion that the civil rights have have been violated, and we need to understand what's at the heart of this. I mean, let's just remind ourselves that we do have a superintendent of schools in Fairfax County who claimed that equal outcomes for all students at any cost Mm -hmm. was her top priority. They've hired in equity consultants in order to drive this mentality. It is a relentless pursuit of equity that would damage the prospects of students. It's just all so gross. And you can hear Sandra Smith in that interview cutting in, is it criminal? The argument is, under the civil rights investigation, is that because of this word equity, that being sort of the cover word, What these officials may have decided was, you know what, there are just too many students of that ethnic background with that skin color who got this award, so let's just not really talk about that. That sounds illegal. That sounds like racism to me, actually. So much of the equity woke stuff is textbook racism. The problem is some of the hardcore leftists out there, what they argue is, yes, but that's good. It might be race-based discrimination, but we need that to make up 
for past injustices. Two wrongs making a right or whatever, no thank you. Finally, Yunkin, making the point that I did as well, about the evolution of the story here, which simply begs a deeper probe into this in Cut 18. What started as a, a suggestion of a clerical error at one school clearly is a shared belief that withholding these accolades from what is a, a disproportionate Asian population is acceptable. It is not. Uh, I believe it does violate our Virginia Human Rights Act. Our attorney general will go, is going to work, Jason Miares, to find out. I mean, Jason's team has done great work in Loudoun County. Uh, we exposed the cover-up of the sexual assault uh, that mm -hmm. the school board and the superintendent undertook. And, and here we are in, in these counties again, Fairfax, Loudoun, and Prince William County, yeah. with the same challenges. Virginia's parents deserve to know what's going on in their children's lives, and we will make sure we defend that right. And excellence in education should be celebrated, mm -hmm. not, not withheld from students. This is a core value that we're going to protect in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Under this administration. Under a different administration, different story. I promise you that. Elections have consequences. And thankfully, this consequence is leading to consequences for people elsewhere in Virginia who deserve it. The Guy Benson Show is back right after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We're back on the Guy Benson Show. Jacinta Ardern is the prime minister in New Zealand. Labor Party, lefty. She has been responsible for arguably the most stringent and insane COVID lockdowns on Earth. And basically saying if the government doesn't tell you something, it's misinformation. Just hardcore authoritarian stuff. And she's been celebrated on the left throughout the world. They love her because of that reason. And she's a young, badass woman or whatever. Well, now the young, badass woman is resigning. I guess on a hot mic, she insulted a rival politician. On top of that, here's the real story. Her popularity and labor's popularity has plummeted in the polls. They're in real trouble. And given the trouble ahead, she's out. She just can't take it anymore is what she announced in Cut 29. Today, I'm announcing that I will not be seeking re-election and that my term as prime minister will conclude no later than the 7th of February. This has been the most fulfilling five and a half years of my life, but it has also had its challenges. I know what this job takes, and I know that I no longer have enough in the tank to do it justice. Ah, oh, she's just burned out. What is she, 42? Just exhausted. Look, when you're telling everyone exactly how to live their lives, can't leave their houses and stuff, I guess that does get exhausting. So facing real problems at the polls, she's out. Sort of like a classic millennial move in some ways. Like, you get all this power, you force people to do exactly what you want them to do, then there's a sign of trouble, and you pull the plug. Good riddance. The Guy Benson Show is back with our final hour coming up. Brian Riedel is here talking numbers. It's interesting, I promise. Straight ahead. It's 
Five o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show from New York City. Thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com, that's our website. GuyBensonShow.com, one of the places you can get our free podcast on demand for free every day. Other options there, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. You want to follow me personally on those platforms, you can follow both accounts at Guy Benson Show and then also at Guy P. Benson, both platforms. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Terrific, refreshing. I'm a fan. I hope you are too. Check it out if you haven't already. Find out where they're sold near you as they expand. TheLongDrink.com is their website. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only. And tune in tonight, 11 p.m. Eastern Time, or set your DVRs. Fox News Channel, Gutfeld, exclamation point. I'm on the panel for the full hour. Can't wait for that. Joining us now is Brian Riedel, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, longtime budget wonk on Capitol Hill. And Brian, it is always good to have you here. Glad to be back. All right, so we are staring down this debt ceiling fight, which is probably going to come into clearer focus, I would guess, in May, because the actual deadline is in June, and they always kick the can until the very last minute. So it'll be May or June. My guess is it's going to be an ugly fight. I want to get some of your ideas and solutions for how Republicans should approach this whole thing. But first, you have a piece out at the dispatch that I think is really useful to talk about and for people to bear in mind when it comes to expectations management, past promises from Republicans, and then delivery or lack thereof. Republicans tend, and this is my cynical side coming out, Republicans tend to talk a good game on fiscal responsibility particularly when they're not in power, in the opposition party, they don't have the presidency, then they're hawks. Then when they control everything, much less hawkish. They kind of like the idea of spending and giving people various you know, pet projects and what have you. But when they're talking the good game, they tell the fiscal conservative base, we're going to do all these things. And in many cases, they absolutely fail in achieving almost any of them. Just give us a few bullet points on that recent history as we start to look ahead to the future here. Yeah, the classic example is in 2018, Republicans unveiled a budget resolution that promised to balance the budget in 10 years. It was going to cut $6.5 trillion in spending. They made a solemn pledge to balance the budget in 10 years. They made no actual proposal to how to make the numbers work and where to cut. And in fact, the day after they unveiled this budget, a full Republican Congress defeated a $1 billion spending cut because it had a $16 million cut to the Land and Water Conservation Fund. So that was one four hundred thousandth of the promised cuts got defeated the next day. Then the next day they passed the big farm bill, and the week after that they busted the budget caps. This is the problem, is Republicans overpromise grand ideas, and then as soon as they realize it's unrealistic, they pass nothing. They move on. And my 
article argues, I would rather you promise $400 billion in cuts and enact it than promise a full balanced budget, which is pretty unrealistic, unfortunately, and then do nothing. Yeah. So a couple points here. Number one, what you just said, Brian, reminds me very much of what you often write about which is the absolute fantasies of the Democratic Party and the progressive left, where they propose you know, trillions or even tens of trillions of dollars in new spending. And then when they're asked on paper to actually pay for it, they just can't. They can't come close, and they just actually attack you for even asking the question, right? So it's just fantasy numbers, made-up math. And this is kind of the GOP version of it, where they say, oh, yeah, we're going to do all this cutting – but don't really ask us how. And when push comes to shove, we're not going to do it. Let's move on. Yeah, there's a lot of gimmicks out there. We're going to balance the budget in 10 years, but we don't know how. There's like the penny plan that sounds good. Just cut a penny per year out of every dollar spent. But in reality, 80% of all spending in the next decade is going to be Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, defense and veterans, and interest. Now, if you want to balance the budget, you've got to eliminate a third of the federal government 10 years from now. But 80% of it is Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, defense, veterans, and interest. So either you've got to get rid of everything else and still cut that, those priority programs, or you've got to be willing to make real cuts to those priority programs. But Republicans, unfortunately, just kind of paper over all of that and say, you know, we'll cut waste, we'll defund Ukraine. You know, those policies might be good or bad, but they're a rounding error compared to what you need to do. And so I want Republicans to cut spending. I want them to do as much as possible, but I want them to be realistic and start and start doing what they can rather than just making promises. Delivering on something, even if it's more modest. And, you know, we were talking about this, this whole notion of balancing the budget. You're saying right now within 10 years uh, that is an unrealistic prospect. Not that long ago, although it's getting farther and farther in the rearview mirror, Paul Ryan and the Republicans put forward budgets that would balance within 10 years. That actually seemed a lot more realistic, but I guess that was trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars of debt ago, right? It doesn't stay the same. It gets worse and harder, right? I think that's another lesson here. Deficits are heading to $2.7 trillion a decade from now. If interest rates rise, the baseline deficit is $3 trillion. Cutting $3 trillion in one year is extraordinarily impossible. Like, it's impossible. You, again, you'd have to eliminate a third of the federal government. Um, it's a lot harder than it was when we talked about this 15, you know, 10, 15 years ago. So what should they do? If you're talking about realistic proposals that might have a chance give us a couple examples of what you think that would look like Uh, i think in the short term we can freeze discretionary spending it's grown 21 percent in two years freeze discretionary spending every point that we reduce the growth rate of discretionary spending over 10 years saves a trillion dollars this is something that republicans have to pass every year and so they have leverage then move on to an entitlement savings proposal that's more modest but achievable, say $400 billion over 10 years. You can go after COVID overpayments, like what we gave money to the states. Um, You can go after benefits for the rich. You can go after waste and fraud. You can actually achieve that. 
and then from there try to build momentum for bigger reforms, the bigger Social Security, Medicare, other, other reforms. Build momentum with the modest stuff and then try to get there. The debt ceiling coming up, I mentioned it a moment ago. I think to many Americans it's sort of a mystery. It seems important. There's a lot of scary language around it about how default could wreak havoc on the economy in a very devastating way. Don't play any games with it. We're seeing the Democrats saying no negotiations. We're not going to discuss it. Republicans saying, well, no, we're going to absolutely need some concessions here. A certain Republicans saying a bunch of hardcore concessions. Those aren't going to happen. But some negotiation is going to happen. I keep saying that if the Republicans want to achieve anything with the leverage that they have here, if you think it's appropriate at all to use the debt ceiling as the occasion to do it, it seems like it's like if not now, then when, since there's never an appetite to do anything. So I'm sympathetic to the idea of trying to force something to happen. I think the Republicans need to pick achievable, modest, reasonable goals and stand united and focus on one or two points, and that's it. I just don't know if they have the discipline to do that. What's your overall take on the debt ceiling fight? And maybe just start with a quick definition of, of why this is so important. The, the, the debt ceiling is when you basically, if you, if you, once you hit the debt ceiling, you can't borrow any more money, which means you essentially have to balance the budget starting that day, which ultimately means you would have to eliminate 20% of spending in order to bring it down to tax revenues. We can't eliminate 20% of spending in one day. It's not realistic. Historically, both parties did use the debt limit. The eight biggest deficit reduction bills since 1985 were all attached to the debt limit. But if Democrats aren't going to play ball on that broadly this year, we can't hit the debt limit. It would be cataclysmic. I think Republicans should stop talking about default, stop talking about prioritization of, of, of certain bills being paid over others, because that's just going to scare voters and make, make conservatives and budget cuts look scary and chaotic. Instead, like you, let's go for achievable uh, items. One idea would be ending the COVID emergency declaration and all COVID emergency spending. That's something the Democrats could even agree to because they can declare victory yeah, over COVID idea. and we can end the spending. Otherwise, do something like the Trust Act that would create a commission on Social Security and Medicare solvency or get a deal to freeze discretionary spending. Something modest like that is more achievable. But every day we talk about default and the consequences is a day we're not putting pressure on the Democrats to focus on what they need to do to finally bring down the deficit. Yeah, I think that COVID emergency idea is maybe the best one that I've heard because the American people overwhelmingly believe that it's over. They'd probably be surprised to learn that it technically is still in place. And all of that money that's sloshing around out there that is supposedly about the COVID emergency, I mean, it's not a total band-aid that's going to fix the problem, but at least it's something. And there can be a political win there as well for the Republicans because the base would love to get that officially ended, the declaration over. That could be something worthwhile. And a lot of Democrats might be tempted to go along. It's something that when floated, I think, in public debate would sound reasonable to most voters as opposed to some of this other stuff. So, you know, I get it. Some guys say, you know, if not now, then when? Let's go and make a bunch of demands. I just worry the Republicans might end up getting nothing if they all decide that they're going to go off on their little projects and little 
cliques and have totally different approaches to this rather than a unified front with their arms linked. I guess we'll see. We'll know in the next couple of months, and perhaps we will have to have you back. Brian Riedel to discuss all of it, senior fellow now at the Manhattan Institute, budget numbers cruncher on Capitol Hill for many years. Brian, always good to have you. Thanks so much, Guy. The Guy Benson Show is back with more right after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We return to the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Here's a story that I saw on my social media feed. I think it might be on the rundown tonight on Gutfeld. I'll be appearing on that program, 11 p.m. Eastern Time. It's the Times of London. The headline is, Cake in the office should be viewed like passive smoking, obesity expert warns. So this quote-unquote expert representing the quote-unquote science is basically saying that bringing cake or baked goods into the office is tantamount to secondhand smoke for people. It's so unhealthy. It must be banned. Reading from the story itself, bringing cake into office settings should be seen as harmful to your colleagues in the same way as passive smoking, the chairwoman of Britain's top food watchdog has said. Doesn't she sound like fun? Britain's top food watchdog. It's like the worst reality show ever. Professor Susan Jeb, of course she's a professor. Susan Jeb of the Food Standards Agency, speaking personally and not on behalf of the agency, she says, also expressed frustration with minister's decision to delay a television watershed for junk food advertising, which she said led to a complete market failure that marginalized healthy products. I guess advertising unhealthy food, she wants to get rid of that too because people just can't help themselves. She urged doctors to be more willing to broach the topic of patients' weight and offer diet help. Okay, fine. That's fine. Although over there it's the government, right? In the UK, it's the government who are your doctors. They control everything in their healthcare system over there. So that's not quite as good. But here at home, if the idea is, Talk to your doctor about your health and your weight and your caloric intake and exercise. Yes, having the government potentially come in and ban fast food ads or saying it's like secondhand smoke if you bring in like a pound cake to the office. It's ridiculous. Secondhand smoke you can't avoid. If you're in a space with the smoke, you're breathing in the oxygen, there's smoke entering your lungs. Cake, you don't have to eat. I know it's hard sometimes. Not really for me. I don't really like cake that much. There are other temptations, food-wise. But you can make a decision not to eat it. It's not like by looking at it in your presence, it is just entering your system. Those calories against your will are entering your body. That's not how that works. So these are not the same thing at all. It's also just a nice gesture. You bring in a cake for colleagues or something, that's a nice thing to do, and she's like, you're evil, you're going to kill people. Just kill Joyce. So it's a baked goods conversation. Let's turn over to Cookie now. And Christine, if you were to bring, let's say, a crumb cake into the office or promise to bring in a crumb cake and then not because you didn't have the ingredients for example, just to pick a random one, 
I would not view that as an attack on my health. I think this is like nanny state annoying nonsense. I get what you're saying, and it is a very nice gesture, but obesity is an epidemic. And we do, obesity can lead to very, very bad health issues. Wait, am I talking to Professor Susan Jeb? Well, I don't have a, a London, an English accent. Yeah, oh, I, hold on, hold on. No, let's. Hello there, guy. Well, I think obesity is a worldwide pandemic that we should. I can't do it anymore. <laughs> so, so are you being serious right now? You feel like it's a problem? I mean, listen. To bring in some cookies for your colleagues because you're making them potentially fat and it's like blowing cigarette smoke in their faces? I mean, personal responsibility here, right? Yes. You know, when, like, I'm at somebody's Christmas party, they're not pouring the wine down my throat. Correct. I'm doing it on my own. Well, you're pouring it down your throat and elsewhere, oh, as it turns out. But um, I get what you're saying. You know, pers- yes. take responsibility. And also, I think the comparison to secondhand smoke is self-defeating. Like, if you're going to try with a straight face to tell me that the government needs to take action, whether it's here or somewhere else, because bringing in and offering baked goods to someone is tantamount to secondhand smoking and those effects, then I can't take you seriously because that's obviously, like, an insulting lie. It's not the same. Sugar is a drug. I mean, people do get addicted to certain things, but also, you are not forcing someone to eat it. That's the point. Also, I don't think, by the way, just second, I was just saying to Dan, is secondhand smoke even a thing anymore? I think they've banned smoking in most public places now. So, yeah, like, and I, that's at least something where there's an argument that I get. This is absurd. I'm looking forward to Cat Timp's take on this tonight on Gutfeld. Since it's on the rundown, I guess we'll see. All right, Cookie, thank you for your input. I will be bringing a crumb cake one of these days. I'm not going to say day because then you're going to hold me to it. I know. It'll just be an open-ended broken promise. That's fine. We'll take a break. We'll come right back. It's The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show from New York City. Thank you very much for tuning in. Earlier on the program, Jennifer Griffin joined us, national security correspondent here at Fox News. We had a lot to talk about today. Here's a taste of that conversation with Jen. Pretty significant development just a few days ago. Helicopter crash killing the interior minister in Ukraine, also 17 others uh, in Kiev. What's the significance? That's a pretty high-ranking official. Well, in fact, it's the most high-ranking Ukrainian official to be killed uh, since the war began um, with the Russian invasion a year ago. The interior minister was a very close Zelensky ally. Uh, What's interesting about that position is he oversaw the national police and the border guards, and they are heavily involved in the fighting at the front lines. So uh, this was a big loss for uh, Zelensky and the Ukrainian government. And right now, I believe that the head of the police has stepped in to take over his jobs as interior minister. Um, but the, the helicopter 
helicopter crash is under investigation. There are no signs, uh, immediate signs, that it was brought down by a Russian missile, per se, but they are investigating. They expect it'll take weeks because they'll have to look at the crash site and, and do the investigation in the midst of, obviously, a war going on. So that could be several weeks before we know what caused the crash. It could have been visibility. It could have been a, uh, you know, a line that it w- was hit. It w- went down in a, a suburb of, of Kiev. And what was particularly tragic about this uh, this uh, crash is that, it, of course, it crashed near a kindergarten mm. and and uh, dozens of children were injured. I do understand that some of the injured have been taken out of the country for treatment. So this might have been a pure accident, but maybe not. And as you say, it might be a while until we know. It's something that I'm sure the Ukrainian government is taking extremely seriously, given the implications. Meanwhile, there's been more training, more weapons heading from the United States to Ukraine, uh, and some of the training happening elsewhere as well. Talk about some of these stepped-up efforts, Jennifer. Well, this is a really key moment in the war, uh, Guy, as as we're about to approach the one-year anniversary on February 24th. What you're seeing right now are preparations being made by both sides, the Ukrainians and the Russians. There's an expected Russian spring offensive. The Russians have done very badly so far in the first year, much worse than what Putin anticipated. And so, uh, you know, you don't have to be a a military genius to know that they're going to make a pretty big push once uh, the spring comes and once uh, and 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 so what you're seeing right now tomorrow there's a very important meeting it's uh, part of what's called the contact group 50 nations the mil- the heads of the militaries and and uh, ministers of defense and secretary of defense Austin will be leading a contact group in Ramstein uh, in Germany at the bar- base there and it's basically like a donors conference for weapons and everybody is sort of going through their stockpiles all the NATO members and other allies and looking for what trying to match up what Ukraine needs right now. Ukraine has been very clear that what they want are tanks. And the U.S. has stopped short of providing tanks uh, because they don't want to escalate A, with with Russia. They don't want this to spread. Remember, from the beginning, President Biden has given the military three goals, not to allow the conflict to spread uh, to NATO countries, to have any sort of Article 5 violation that would then uh, cause NATO to have to react and, and get involved with their militaries, not to allow for a nuclear war to break out, and, and not to have U.S. troops fighting inside Ukraine. So what the Ukrainians have done so well is that any weaponry that the U.S. has provided, whether it's the HIMARS or or the Stingers or the Javelins, they've used it incredibly proficiently, and they've taken on the Russian military. At this moment in time, Zelensky believes that he needs tanks. And so you've seen the Brits were the first to, to donate, I think it's a dozen Challenger tanks. And the discussion tomorrow in Ramstein, Germany, is to, for for countries like uh, uh, Finland and uh, has already said, and some of the Baltic states have said they will give these Leopard uh, tanks that the Germans have. The German uh, the German uh, uh, Chancellor Olaf Scholz has said that he will give tanks. He's very concerned. Obviously, Germany is concerned about the war uh, coming to its doorstep and for Russia taking on Germany directly in any way, either economically or or through other nefarious means. But he's nervous about providing tanks without the U.S. providing tanks. The U.S. has stopped short of wanting to provide the M1 Abrams tanks because then they've had a number of excuses that they take a lot of maintenance, that they use uh, jet fuel, uh, which is hard 
to come by at, at this point in time in the war and and that they think that it, it will be so they they have stopped short uh for one reason or another of providing the abrams what they are providing is you ex- we will expect a two billion dollar announcement tomorrow of more striker vehicles bradley fighting vehicles these will be good for transporting troops to the front line safely and along the front lines uh, but you are seeing a massive push right now. And the biggest change guy that I've heard in terms of the behind-the-scenes talk is that for the first time since the war began, the Biden administration is considering uh, allowing, giving Ukraine the, the weaponry and the ra- range of weaponry that will allow it to uh, take on the Russian forces in Crimea. That is a big, sh- that is a sea change in terms of thinking within the Pentagon and the White House. Uh, we'll see what comes of that, but those reports are starting to sort of leak out that there are more and more discussions of that, what that would mean for the spring. The Russians are using Crimea as a basing. Uh, that's where they're firing many of the Iranian, launching many of the Iranian drones that mm-hmm. are causing such trouble. And so uh, to cut off the supply lines there and really divide the Russian military in half and cut them off from their bases, that would be a very significant um, and very uh, smart move from the part from the side of the Ukrainians. My full interview with Jennifer Griffin, our Fox News colleague, available at GuyBensonShow.com. Part of our free podcast every day, the whole show, start to finish, on demand for free. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch. producer Christine got swindled today. She proudly announced it to all of us, first thing she told me when I got in. Now she's gun-shy. She doesn't want to talk about the story. Yes, she does, and we will next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch, Friday Eve, on the Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com, podcast free every day, on demand when the show's over, coming up here in just a few minutes. Catch me tonight on Gutfeld, 11 p.m. Eastern, Fox News Channel. I'm on the panel. Looking forward to that. Before we get to the teased topic, Christine getting swindled, I do have a question. We had mentioned this, I think, earlier in the week, and I want to make sure that we satisfy this curiosity. Wyatt, who recently returned from his vacation in the U.K. and France, his first time in those countries, he confided in me that he developed an addiction in the United Kingdom, bought a pretty large quantity of a certain product, has blown through all of it already, and is now paying a lot of money to have a bunch of it shipped to him to Washington, D.C., from the U.K. That must cost a pretty penny. Wyatt, what is this newfound addiction? Don't worry. I didn't start smoking cigarettes while across the sea. But well, just wait until you hear what they call cigarettes over there. But go on. <laughs> it's these... Um, these candies, these little gummy candies called squashies or squishies or something, <laughs> and they are just addicting. I like I've eaten a few bags when I was there, like literally like like these little bags. I've, I've eaten all of them, and then I brought some back, knowing I like them so much. And the one day I'm sitting here in the control room in D.C. and I just keep eating it while I'm working and doing stuff, and then I realize I've eaten a whole bag in one sitting, and that this is now an addiction. So they are called. Squashies. They're made by something called Swizzles. This sounds very British. Swizzles Squashies. And it's unclear from these photos exactly what kind of candy this is. I know that it's definitely not my 
general taste in candy. I like some chocolate, and that's about it. This looks much closer to the Sour Patch Kids family of candy, if that makes sense. Is that right? Yeah, but it's just not as, like, sugary. You know, it's like it's like a gummy candy, but and the original flavor, which I'm obsessed with, is raspberry and milk, which is weird, but it's very, Ew. very good. Raspberry and milk? Huh. And so you went through your entire stockpile that you brought home with you. So are you paying some sort of huge premium to have this shipped across the pond? Is this sold in America anywhere? Well, I think you could buy them on Amazon, but... I don't know how I feel about that. They don't. They don't look good there, and they're really expensive, like six dollars a bag, which that's expensive. But if you order them online on their some British site where you can get them, they're only like two dollars, two pounds a bag. Mm. So I think I need to make a, a a bulk order to sustain for a few <laughs> weeks because I'm I'm going through withdrawals right now. You're shaking. You're sort of scratching. You're itching. Uh, be careful and consult your dentist. I think on this. I was googling the product. And it had one of these autofill suggested questions. What do squashies taste like? Here's the answer on Google. They taste raspberry milk. Texture smooth. They are in the form of jellies but are very hard to chew. Fact check, Wyatt? Very true. Okay. Christine, do you have any thought on this whatsoever? I'm intrigued. I'm trying to figure out how to order some. I feel like Miss Megan would like these. They look like those double-sided erasers. Like <laughs> pencil erasers. Yeah, from, from back in the day. Yeah. Oh, when I was bored in school, I would just erase nothing and create the little powder just for 20 straight minutes, usually during math class. Sorry, Wyatt. Not my strong suit. All right, so it's Squashies. Wyatt is obsessed. And now we know he will start his day with Rook Coffee, Squashies, and the Wall Street Journal. He really knows how to live on the edge. Yeah, exactly. Wild thing. Wild Wyatt. Let someone bring this man under control. All right, Christine, a couple things here. Nope. Number one, you got a text message from my mother, did you not? I sure did. She's often on your side, not really, but sympathetic because she feels like you get a raw deal here. We poke too much fun at you. I do, and you do. And then yesterday we talked about you getting kicked out of gymnastics class of your daughter. I, I, I just, I was asked to leave. That's banned. And my mother, Lisa, weighed in. What did she say? She feels that I really need to back off here. Mm -hmm. And that she's just, she's so sweet. Bless her heart. She feels that Megan's going to get hurt by trying to watch me while she's doing tumbling, which I I guess makes sense. So listen, if Mrs. Benson says to get out of the class, you get out of the class. So you've got Judgy Joyce. I've got lovely Lisa. And they both believe the same thing here. Mm -hmm. I think that should say something. Lisa's much nicer about it. I mean, I've never met Joyce, but from your stories, that checks out. Okay, so that's thing number one. Thing number two, you came marching, and I was getting ready for Outnumbered earlier. Downstairs, you delivered my Coke Zero, thank you. And you excitedly told me about how you got swindled this morning. (sighs) So you are $35 poorer. What happened? It is raining in the uh, tri-state area today. And I could not find, I have this beautiful Fox News umbrella, and I can't find it anywhere. I don't know what happened to it, but I, I'm, someone might have stole it, to be perfectly honest. Oh, were you robbed again, like you were in D.C.? Is that what happened? 
Was I robbed in D.C.? Oh, yes. yes. No, I you was thought robbed. you were robbed, oh, and you right. were screaming no, that right. you were robbed, and in fact, you had just forgotten something somewhere. Yeah, it wasn't even like I lost it. It was just sit back in the room. Yeah, so Occam's razor is you've lost your umbrella. No one stole it. Okay. And so when I got off the train today, I am terrified to take the subway, so I walk to work every day. And, you know, it's You're not- terrified just you think someone's going to shove you in front of a train? Yes. Okay. And I think that's well, a le- If you've got a Fox News umbrella, be careful <laughs> in New York City. It's a legit concern about being thrown in, in front of a subway. I think you can maybe position yourself on the platform in such a way as to make that much less likely, and it already is infinitesimally unlikely, but fine. You're going to walk in the rain instead, mm-hmm. okay, for your safety. Yes. Mm. And I did not have an umbrella. So I went to the shoe shine place in Penn Station and they had like a variety of umbrellas. And this guy who maybe owns the place, he works there, he seemed so friendly and so nice. And I said, you know, which one should I get? And he's like, if you want one that's going to last and it's good quality, get this one. And he gave it to me. And I'm like, okay. I mean, he has an honest face. So let me go buy this umbrella. <laughs> uh-huh. Thinking could be like 15 bucks. no. $35. Come on. And at that point, he was like, thank you so much for your business. Like, anytime you want your shoes shined oh. or a friend or a relative. Like, he was so nice that I felt really bad saying. We could just say it all together. You are the mark. In all of these circumstances, the fortune teller in Times Square, the shoe shine guy ripping you off for a $40 umbrella, Prince Harry buying his book. Andy Cuomo, you're Andy. I mean, there's a there's a theme here. So you forked over $35 for this extremely high-quality umbrella. He, I'm sure, knew what the weather was like outside. Here's a woman in desperate need of this product. So he price gouged you. You went for it. Is it at least a fabulous, excellent, superb, high-quality umbrella that you will cherish and use for many years? It barely even covers me. Like, I could still feel the rain Mm -hmm. coming down on my jacket. And it flipped. You know when the wind sometimes gets bad and your umbrella flips up? Yep. Well, halfway walking here, here goes the umbrella all the way up. So now I'm trying to, like, pull it down, and the metal looks like a little bent. So I made the mistake of calling my husband. Mm. And he, I mean, he wasn't surprised. He actually actually said to me, um... Because he listens to Home Stretch, and he said I might even go text Guy because Guy's right. You don't have great judgment. Well, it's and also it's also the first thing you said to me when you walked in too, and I was not surprised at all. She proudly walks around the corner and goes, <laughs> "Guess what happened?" I know. I was like, "Why are you telling me like this?" She because loves I just these can't stories. believe. I believed him. He said it was great quality. It broke before you even got. To your destination a few blocks. Yeah, and let me tell you, the wind is not that bad no, today. No, the wind is not the problem. The rain is the problem. You were getting rained on, yep. and the basically non-existent wind broke your umbrella mm-hmm. after you spent $35 on it. So now Bobby said, do you have the receipt? And I said, yes. And he's like, you need to march back there on your way home and go return the umbrella. Good luck. Right? Good luck. I think that is, first of all, even if you went Jersey on him, I think it would be hard to get that money back. Secondly, I don't think you have it in you. I think you are going to make awkward eye contact with the guy and chicken out because he's got his honest face. You're going to walk right past, and those $35 are gone, so. It, it, it does bother me. I'm hoping that maybe, like, his shift is over by the time I get there, 
and there's somebody else. But the thing is, I don't even have the box. He took it. He was so nice. He took it mm. out for me. He goes, a gentleman. Well, he knew I needed it then. He's like, let me just take it out of the box for you. So they just handed me the umbrella. I do have the receipt. It doesn't say umbrella on it. Hmm. Umbrellas are like the most free handout things in the world. I can't imagine spending money on one. $35. I know, but they're, everyone gives them out like, like all the time. If it's raining and people are desperate, you see people on the street in New York sometimes being like five bucks, 10 bucks, five bucks, 10 bucks. You paid more than triple the high end of the ripoff cost. And it was, it's, I showed Dan, it's a tiny umbrella. It's nothing to write home about. Your umbrella looks much nicer, which I just borrowed from my hotel. It's large. I walked, I pushed the button, and it flew up. Yeah, and hitting the button in mine, it wasn't shutting. I huh. kept saying to Bobby, this button's not working. For such a high-quality product, I'm shocked. Oh, Christine. Has a lifetime warranty, he said. Well, maybe in order to really get your money back and work up the courage to go confront him later on, you need to be on some sort of a sugar high. May I recommend squashies? Back here tomorrow on The Guy Benson Show on Friday back in D.C. Tonight on Gutfeld. Hope to see you there. Have a wonderful evening. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.